0: Welcome to the Global Good Podcast, where each week we'll travel around the globe meeting the most incredible people doing the work that's truly making the world a better place. From the peaks of the Himalayas to leagues under the sea, join us as we embark on adventure for good. This week, we're going to do something a little different. While researching last week's episode, Traveling Across the U.S., I ran into a story about another time in history when certain communities around the world were filled with misinformation about how a disease was spreading. And I went down a rabbit hole. But after hearing from some of you, I decided that a couple times a month, we will embrace these diversions at least that's what I'm calling them for right now, Um, to help us better understand the world and the people around us and just how we got to where we are. My goal is for these episodes to be much shorter and happen every other week. Really, we're just going to do a deep dive into something that's mind-blowing or fascinating that we didn't know shaped history or what we say or do on a daily basis but relates to the other episode travels and the work our interviewees are doing that makes the world a better place. So okay, unless you have a better idea for what to call these little deep dive episodes, I'm just going to call them diversions. And please send your diversion ideas and stories about something really fascinating that shapes the world around you or makes it a bit more colorful to stories at com. Now this week, Buckle up for our first diversion with a brief stop in Omaha, Nebraska in the United States. I think this stop in Nebraska is important because it reminds us that humans are human. If you've ever heard me do a talk, I often say that humans are going to human. It's what we're really good at. And really, the point is we're not only not different from one another, but we're really not different from our ancestors. To prove that point, today we're going to revisit a time in American history when we were deep into what is known as the great book scare. You heard that right. We were terrified of books, library books in particular, believing they could give us tuberculosis, or what people back then often called consumption. Before we jump in, I want to give credit to some great writers who have covered this almost completely forgotten period in American history that was driven by political clashes, fear, and misinformation. Might sound a little similar, huh? So, special thanks to Joseph Hayes from Smithsonian Magazine, Michael Cavane, I'm so sorry if I mispronounced that, Michael, and William Sundstrom from Santa Clara University, ScienceMadeFun.net, Annika Mann, author of Reading Contagion, The Hazards of Reading in the Age of Print, and Gerald Greenberg's 1988 article, Books as Disease Carriers. All those resources will be shared on our website, theglobalgoodpodcast.com, and in the show notes. Today's journey starts with a woman in Nebraska named Jessie Allen, who died of tuberculosis in 1895. You see, Miss Allen was the director of the Omaha Public Library, and thanks to common fears at the time, people worried that Allen's TB, or tuberculosis, may have come from books. It's important to know that during this time, theories about germs and disease and how they were spread, it was new, and it was top of mind to researchers and medical doctors. Theories in the centuries before, up until the 1880s in fact, focused a lot on miasma. Now, miasma is an old medical theory that claims diseases from the black death to chlamydia were caused by bad air. I use really loose air quotes there for bad air. Of course, people who lived in worse cramped conditions and had worse air quality and worse sanitation, which resulted in more sickness. But the idea validated incorrect biases about class and education. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. Once we get to the 1890s, theories about germs were getting a lot of attention, and the public was becoming more aware of how germs and diseases spread through things like water and on surfaces. So 130 years ago, scientists were noting the relationship between germs and the spread of disease through objects. Well, a very interesting phenomenon was on the rise at the same time. In the latter half of the 1800s, people were handling books. You see, the concept of public libraries wasn't brand new, but it was really just taking off. After doing some digging, like a diversion within a diversion, I learned that when the first modern public library was opened is a really highly contested topic. You see, until about the 1800s, libraries were privately owned by wealthy families or they were subscription-like, meaning you had to at least make enough money to pay to access books. Thus, many say the first truly public library was opened in 1833, but it still took several decades for the idea to take off, and it was really just getting started in the 1880s which means books at public libraries, particularly in cities, were high-touch just when Jesse Allen died of tuberculosis. So what is tuberculosis, also known as TB, also known as consumption? Well, it's nasty and spreads from person to person through the air by bacteria. When people with lung TB cough, sneeze, or spit, they propel the TB germs into the air— A person only needs to inhale a couple drops of these germs to become infected. It might sound kind of familiar to something we're dealing with now, but the wild part is almost one-fourth, that's right, a quarter of the world's population has a TB infection, according to the WHO. In 2018, 1.7 billion, that's billion with a B, people were infected with TB bacteria. TB is actually the leading infectious disease killer in the world, still claiming a million and a half lives a year. But people infected with TB bacteria only have a 5 to 10% lifetime risk of falling ill. And even when they do develop those TB symptoms like cough, fever, night sweats, weight loss, it can actually be pretty mild for many months. This often leads to delays in seeking care and, sadly, the transmission of the bacteria to other people without their knowledge. In fact, it's estimated people with active TV can infect 5 to 15 other people a year without knowing they've done it. So why don't we hear more about tuberculosis? The truth is because more than 95% of cases and deaths are in low-income countries. And let's be honest, if the current pandemic has taught us anything, it's that high-income countries only really care when it affects them personally. For example, last year, 9 million people became sick with a disease we've been able to cure since 1949. That's tuberculosis. In 1949 streptomycin was given to the first human patient. That means that since then, and today, TB is 100% curable. Well, at least for those of us who have access to diagnosis and treatment. And as a side note, here in the US and in the UK, there were actually people, primarily women, who wanted to contract tuberculosis because they thought it was sexy. Seriously, that wafy, CK1 model, heroin chic look from the 1990s. That was also popular in the 1890s. There were a lot of women who thought being pale and thin was really cool. Uh, NPR once referred to TB as a disease associated with 19th century romantic era poets and artists. Doesn't that sound lovely? And yet, as I said earlier, it kills a million and a half people a year, right now not to mention the millions per year it's killed for over a hundred years if you want to learn more about tb i recommend listening to episode 9 of this podcast will kill you all right now let's go back to 1895 and librarian jesse allen in nebraska this poor woman contracts and eventually dies from tb people rightfully get scared and look to whatever they can blame And right there in front of them is something Miss Allen touched every day and passed from person to person. Books. It also didn't help that back in 1879, a librarian in Chicago named W.F. Poole was asked whether books could transmit disease. So what did Poole do? Well, he located several doctors who all of a sudden claimed to be knowledgeable in disease-spreading books. And would it surprise you to learn that coverage by newspapers then exacerbated and stoked fears about, well, you know, disease-spreading books? Ugh! In addition to the fear of germs on the book covers and in the pages, there also became a fear of inhaling book dust and getting the disease that way. Cities went so far as to pass laws prohibiting the lending of bedding, clothing, and other things that a sick person might touch. And then those laws were expanded in the 1800s saying that those suspected of having an infectious disease were forbidden to borrow, lend, or return a library book. Fines were up to 40 shillings for the crime of borrowing or returning a book. And if I did that math correctly, uh, and shout out to the Bank of England for having a currency and year converter, 40 shillings equates to a little over 200 US dollars today. So, I mean, these were some pretty serious fines associated with returning a book. While some places took up measures to disinfect books and their pages, others just took to burning them. And as you might have guessed, we jumped headfirst into a panic-induced slippery slope of book burning. I mean, when you could be asked to pay the modern-day equivalent of a couple hundred dollars, or told you might get sick and die you might start burning books too. Now, you might be asking, why didn't the founders or financial titans or patrons of the library step in? Well, earlier, I promised we'd come back to this private versus public library thing. And the simple truth is, the wealthy elite were just fine with the common public burning or throwing away their limited resource to general education, because book borrowing meant the average citizen was reading and learning. If you listen to episode three of this show, the one on education in Afghanistan, you heard our guests say that the primary reason they focus on education in Afghanistan is that, quote, there is nothing a terrorist fears more than an educated girl. So now take that idea and expand it. You have, in the 1890s, a very limited number of wealthy individuals and their families who had access to libraries. And then all of a sudden, anyone can access that knowledge. But just as you begin to really fear you might lose part of your advantage in life, people begin destroying their new means of leveling the playing field. So it doesn't seem that many influential people or newspapers at the time were really doing much to step in and correct the misinformation. As such, well into the 1900s, uh, Massachusetts book clubs, for example, called for book burnings, and Scranton, Pennsylvania ordered libraries to halt lending. And this wasn't just in the U.S. Britain was also all in. On the Great Book Scare, doing their fair share of book burning and panic. And as I said at the beginning of the show, we're not different from our ancestors. In addition to taking their fears out on books, because people react similarly when they're scared, they also took their fears out on librarians. There are reports that librarians were victimized, but only in certain locations. You see, Just like today in the United States, legislation to prevent the spread of TB through book lending was left to the states. So panic was localized to certain regions. Books, libraries, and librarians weren't all subjected to the same levels of drama and hysteria. Now, Eventually, things obviously calmed down and lending returned to normal. Future attempts to raise issues around tuberculosis and books were pretty much squashed by librarians who recognized the fear was unfounded. And luckily, science caught up. But you know, just because the great book scare began to fizzle out around 1915, that still means that decades went by where the fear existed. And sadly, It didn't stop some wild experiments at the time, because people wanted to learn more. As the Smithsonian Mag article by Joseph Hayes mentions, experiments took place on animals like guinea pigs and monkeys. Researchers did some pretty nutty things, like have animals drink milk from a platter that contained a page of a book that was potentially contaminated. Those poor animals... And it was reported that 40 out of 40 guinea pigs were killed in the process. Now, luckily for us, libraries have made a great comeback and medical research has advanced. And as I mentioned earlier, despite the long road we still have ahead in eradicating tuberculosis from the world, once it became curable, lives did change for the better all over the globe. I'll be sharing some photos on our social media, so be sure to visit our Instagram at the Global Good Podcast and Twitter, Global Good Pod. I particularly want to share some stunning pictures of libraries and bookstores because who doesn't love a beautiful bookstore or library? Uh, my favorite it's so weird that I'm in love with a bookstore I can't pronounce, but <laughs> if you ever make it to Buenos Aires in Argentina, Please go to the El Ateneo Grand Splendid. Uh, I did the best I could. And this is after asking friends in Argentina how to say it. But it's this stunning theater that was turned into a bookstore. If you work there or if you know someone who works there, please reach out to me. I love you. Teach me everything. But I also want to hear from all of you. What are your recommendations for the best bookstores and libraries in the world? send pictures and send your stories uh, and send us some diversion ideas. This has actually been really fun. Uh, send everything to stories at globalgoodpodcast.com and we'll see you next week with a regular episode. Have a great week.